And I want to go to Isaiah 58 to begin with. This is one that's used very frequently on the Day of Atonement, or at least I have used it frequently on the Day of Atonement. And I want to go back to it now because there's an awful lot in here about the purposes of a fast that are easy to overlook. He says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. There's a problem with all of us. There is a problem with physical Israel, and certainly there have been serious problems in the church, and we need to understand. Now, this chapter really is going to tell us what Herbert Armstrong boiled down in really two phrases. Actually, one. The object is to give, not to get. And that's what this chapter really is about. It says they seek me daily, and God's people in God's church generally pray uh, sometime during the day. I doubt if any of us hardly ever go a day without sending some words up to God. Some days you send more than others, but we do seek him daily. So this is not talking to anyone really but us. I think the physical Israel out there doesn't seek God daily. I don't think you could say that. Some of them who are religious, pray daily, I suppose. In fact, I know some of them do. But as a nation, as a whole, as a people, Israel does not. I think the church does by far more because we're spiritual Israel. So it certainly has an application to us, and you are my audience, the world isn't, so if I am to speak, then I speak to who is listening, or to whom is listening. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, a facade of righteousness at least. Uh, They appear on the surface to be righteous. They come to church with their Sabbath smile on. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God, we give certainly lip service to the laws of God. The Protestants say the law is done away with, but all his ordinances... We accept. So we give them lip service at least. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. And I think that certainly fits us. We take delight in approaching to God. And yet, perhaps, sometimes we deceive ourselves on what our real purpose is sometimes in our prayers to God, what we're really after. So he addresses this. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you see not? Now, I like for fasting to accomplish something. I don't like to go hungry for nothing. Uh, I, I have a purpose in mind when I fast. And well, we should. And then we may not get an answer from God that we expected sometimes when we fast. And we say, well, I fasted. Why didn't you give me what I wanted? There's a bit of an echo coming back through the speaker. I don't know. It's not real heavy, but I wonder if it's echoing out there on the on the telephone line. Just as a, a matter of, I don't know whether it's volume or just what it might be. Is it echoing out there? Thank you. Uh, maybe they can work on that as I continue. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you see not? 
Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and you take no knowledge? You don't seem to be paying any attention to us, he says. You shall not fast as you do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. In other words, there's something wrong with our approach in how we're fasting, because fasting should avail much, shouldn't it? I mean, Christ even talked about demons at one point and said that this kind come out only by prayer and fasting. So fasting should have a positive effect. Now, if we find that we fast, and sometimes we don't have a positive effect, I wonder if we're fasting for the right reasons and in the correct attitude. Okay. If God is turning a deaf ear to our fasting at times, then let's explore why. And let's find out why, because I like results. I like results when I pray. I like results when I sit down at dinner time. I, you know, I like results when I do something. Otherwise, why spend the time, effort, and energy to eat or to drink or to fast or to pray or anything else unless we get positive results? Behold, in the verse 3, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure in exact all your uh, labors, the King James says, uh, my margin says, things wherewith you grieve others. In other words, we throw a burden or a labor on others. We exact grief on other people. How? How do we grieve other people? Often we grieve other people in how we approach them, what we do to them, how we treat them in business and as neighbors. In other words, he says your conduct has something to do with this. How do you treat employees? How do you treat bosses? You create grief on them by the way you live. And, you know, God says he does not hear the prayers of sinners. If we are living a life of sin in some form, God will turn a deaf ear to our prayers. He said that in several places. We've seen that before, so I won't take a lot of time on that. Behold, you fast for strife and debate. Now, why do we strive with anyone and debate with anyone? Because we want our way. We want our way. Otherwise, there would be no argument. So it brings grief to relationships when we argue and fight and strive, and then we go to God and ask for what? What we want, while we are not giving people what they want. So it's a matter of give-get here, isn't it? We'll go to God and fast and pray, for our desires to be fulfilled while we are not fulfilling the desires of others. That's why he says, I won't forgive you unless you forgive someone else. Very clearly there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he addresses that over and over. And to smite with a fist of wickedness. How do we smite others with a fist of wickedness? Is it wicked to give people what they deserve? The ox who feds out the corn is not muzzled. Do you like to get your paycheck on time? You certainly do. Do you pay your employees on time? Maybe, maybe not. Do you have dinner for your family? Probably so. 
You know, we, we get that done. But in relationships outside the home, and sometimes even within the home, sometimes we have an awful lot of selfishness, which really is wickedness. And we'll see the contrast of this in a minute when it gets down to the true purpose of fasting. He says, you shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. We can, we can cry out to God. We can get sincere uh, in our effort in prayer. We can cry out with all our whole being, body, emotion, and everything to get God to answer us and give us what we desire, can't we? We can get very um, powerful sometimes in our prayers about what we think we need. We make our voice heard on high before God. Sometimes a self-pitying, selfish prayer can be very, very uh, uh, strong, very emotional, can't it? Is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, let's say, in self-pity? That's what this is describing, a self-pitying attitude. And to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. A lot of self-righteousness can come sometimes in fasting. Oh God, aren't I fasting? Don't I have sackcloth and ashes on? Aren't I heaping ashes on my head? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the eternal? Or is it just going hungry? Can you call it a fast that is acceptable to God as opposed to just going hungry? I have fasted many times in my life in which I just went hungry and accomplished nothing spiritual. I've done it many times over the last nearly 50 years. But I don't like that. All right, let's talk then about the fast that God has chosen. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, that is, the burdens of carnality, of selfishness. What are our heavy burdens? Our burdens really have to do with ourself and our attitude, don't they? To let the oppressed go free. Now, what am I oppressed by? I am oppressed by lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy. That's what oppresses me. I'm trying to live God's way, but I have all of these human emotions day in and day out that I have to deal with. As Paul said, the things I want to do, I can't seem to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I seem to do. You have the daily fight that you and I have every day of our lives. Those are the burdens that have to be loosed. All right, notice then verse 7. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh. You don't deceive yourself that I can just walk with God, and I don't have to be involved with these other people. But God says we have to have an involvement, and we have to be giving. What fasting really does is break the bands of selfishness so that we then begin to give. And that's what he says here. He says you have to break that carnality and selfishness and be willing to give to others. 
then you are fasting for the right reasons. So when I say let's fast to get close to God, why do I need to be close to God? Because he is God, and he is giving and loving and sharing and kind and gentle and all the good things. And I, by nature, deceive myself and am carnal to the core. So I have to break that band of selfishness and begin to give to others. All right. He says, this is a fast that I will answer. Notice it, verse 8. Then, now when you fast for the right reason, to give and serve others, then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the eternal shall be in your rear guard. God will be with you before and behind. Then shall you call, and the Eternal shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. Remember Samuel? with woke up in the middle of the night and says, Here am I. Went back to sleep, got called again. Here am I. Now that's the way God will respond if we fast for the right reasons, the right purpose and goal in mind, and actually accomplish what is given there. Why do we need to fast? Mostly because we're not like God. Mostly because we get carnal and selfish and do our own thing instead of doing God's thing. So we need to fast to break selfishness and learn to be giving. And this is not easy for us. But God does say that he will answer that. He will say, here I am. If you take away from you, the midst of you, the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. Now that also, see, is, is self-oriented. When I point the finger at somebody else, I'm saying, you're the problem, I'm not. And we stand up in pride and vanity, speaking vanity, saying, someone else is the problem, I'm not. That's why the whole message you hear in this organization, for the most part, boils down to Let's quit pointing the finger at others, other churches, other groups, other people. Let's point the finger at self and get me straightened out. Then we might be of some worth to God. That's what this whole chapter is talking about. It all goes back, I'm putting in different words, but what Herbert Armstrong taught us all those years, the way of God is to give, not to get. And so often we fast, why? Because we want something. We need something. We have a crisis. We need a job. We need money. We need uh, help. We need something. So we pass. It's the wrong motive, wrong motivation. And very often, I mean, if that is the true emotion, and it's easy to deceive ourselves in self-righteousness, we think we have the right motivation, but so often it's wrong, and then we wonder, well, I fasted, I thought I did the right thing, I prayed, and nothing happened. We were fasting for the wrong reason. This is a lifetime thing. And it's why we need to fast a lot more than just on the Day of Atonement, when we're commanded to. Now, on the Day of Atonement, we fast. Partly the meaning is to become at one with God. Well, what is God's attitude? Give, share, help, 
Let us rule the universe with him. Let us inherit the earth. His whole attitude is wanting to give it to us. Then why would we die, Israel? Why, why don't you listen? Why don't you do what I say? Why don't you become giving like I am, and then I'll let you rule the world? Now, Satan approached it from a different angle, didn't he, when he talked with Christ of the temptation after 40 days of fasting? Why? Look at that whole scenario here. Jesus Christ knew he was going to be sorely tempted. He fasted 30 days and 40 nights to do what? To get close to his father, to think like his father. Then Satan comes in person and says, I'll give you the world if you'll just worship me. I'll give you the world. Now, had he been in a selfish mood, he'd have thought, well, I'd like to rule the world. I'd like to be in charge of everything. And he would have bit. I got a letter just yesterday from someone who said, you have a chance to be very important here at the end. If you make the right decisions, and then implied, you must listen to me and do what I say. The exact same approach that Satan used on Christ. If you'll just listen to me, everything will be fine, and you can be important. Fortunately, I don't care whether I'm important or not. I really don't. <laughs> you know, I have a block of 100, 150, 200 people, and, uh, man, that's sometimes as important as I want to be. It's enough of a job without having thousands and thousands and thousands. I look at the problems that I've experienced over the years with anywhere from 200 to six or 800 people in local congregations, and I marvel at how Herbert Armstrong even kept his sanity, much less led us anywhere. We better listen to the Word of God, and not necessarily somebody's interpretations of the Word of God, uh, unless they fit the Scripture. All right, now, where was I here? In the verse 9, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity, you know, we, we lift ourselves up and put others down by the pointing of the finger. Verse 10, and if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Now, isn't that what Christ told us in Matthew 25? You didn't feed me when I was naked and hungry and sick and so on. Well, when did we not do this to you? When you didn't do it to everybody. But that's all he's doing. He's preaching the same things that Christ repeated in the New Testament. Things that he had written back here and repeated there. Then shall your light rise in obscurity, and your darkness be as the noonday. Isn't the church in darkness today? Didn't Paul say it's high time to wake up and not live like people in the night? but to live as people of the day. And the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make that your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. If you do the right things, you don't have to worry about fasting for things for yourself. You're fasting for the right reason. You break that ridge of carnality, those bonds of iniquity that Satan and human nature lay upon us, 
and you learn to give and serve and help, and then God answers your prayers and takes care of you too. It's a win-win situation if we do it right, and it's a lose-lose situation if we do it Satan's way. Then he says in verse 12, And they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You, they, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Then it mentions the Sabbath specifically. But we can be repairers of the breach. The breach where? Between God and man. Between the church and God, for that matter. We can begin to repair those breaches one by one on an individual basis. Now, God is going to have to shake the church far more than he has to date in order for people to begin to wake up and repair the breaches. Because we have watered in materiality, we have wallowed in selfishness, and that's why God scattered us in the first place if you read Revelation 3 and Lamentations and many other scriptures. But we can begin to repair those breaches if we repair the breach with God and begin to get over the attitudes that we have come to have. Now, I, I mention this in connection with land because that is something we have been desirous of, and I have heard talk around here and there, and I've even embodied in it some myself from time to time, and I don't know that it was necessarily wrong, but it could be, depending on attitude. And that is, well, God's just going to give us those people's land, or he's going to give us these people's land. Well, maybe he will, maybe he will, or won't. But, if I have a covetous attitude toward that, then I'm breaking which command? The tenth one. Now I ask you, which of the Ten Commandments, if you mention the Ten Commandments, will people, you say, well, name the Ten Commandments. What are the easy ones they'll talk about? Well, the first, that's pretty easy. The second and third get a little muddy. The fourth on the Sabbath they'll remember right away. And then all those that have to do with our relationship with man, they'll mention lying, cheating, Stealing adultery, well, cheating's not in there, I guess. Adultery's cheating. But they'll mention those that are easy that come to mind. Murder, lying, stealing, honoring your father and mother. But if you ask them to name some of the Ten Commandments, I'll bet you almost invariably people will leave out, thou shalt not covet. It's one that's easy to overlook. It is not an overt action like sticking your hand out to steal or bringing a knife out to stab and kill, or commit adultery, or a scream an obscenity of your parent. It's a mental thing, as opposed to an overt, outright action. And that one becomes a difficulty. I want to talk about that today, to be sure that we have the right attitude, because covetousness is really what we've been talking about in Isaiah 58. We have our desires, our needs, our selfish things that we want, and that's what we tend generally to fast about. Not to break the bonds of iniquity and wickedness so that we can give to others. And I'll tell you this, if God does see fit 
to allow this land deal that we're contemplating to go through. And for all those of you who are out there may not be familiar, uh, we're not going to start a commune by any means, but we would like to live in close proximity and be able to be in an agricultural situation where we can raise properly the foods that we need to be eating and so on and so forth and have our kids play together and try to get Babylon out of our society. We're talking about a community, not a commune. The Mormons have little towns, communities all over the place. The Amish have communities. Uh, you name any group of people, they have communities. This nation is a nation of communities. Some of those communities are still small. Some have grown large, like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. But they started out as small communities. <coughs> so there's nothing wrong with us living near each other, each owning his own land and having his own vine and fig tree. We're not talking communism here whatsoever. We're talking about living close together and trying to love it. But if we get a piece of land that those who choose to do so can live on, and we go into it with the attitude, now I've got my piece of land, I'll build my house, I'll take care of me, this will not be a happy place. If we all go there with the attitude of here is an opportunity for us to build something together and I can give and serve and help others in whatever they need done, then we can have a happy society. If we want the kingdom of God just so we might live forever in health and wealth and peace, God will not permit us to be there because we're in the attitude of Isaiah 58, the first half of the chapter. And he doesn't want that kind of people in his kingdom who are there to grasp and get and desire. That's wrong. Now let's understand, go back to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Let's look at this command today. Because if we do accomplish something in terms of a society together, I think we need to address the Tenth Commandment very, very uh, squarely. Verse 17 of Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That would mean his actual house he dwells in. It could mean his land. It could mean uh, a lot of things. The land that the house is on. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's something that is illegal for you to have is his wife. Now his land you might buy or his house if you have the money and he wants to sell it and you think that's a nice house, and he's leaving anyway, and you want to buy his house, fine. It could be a legal thing and still come under covetousness. It might be an illegal thing and come under covetousness because you can't buy his wife. Some days he might be willing to sell her, but... Uh, and this applies the other direction, too. Don't covet your neighbor's husband nor his manservant. Slaves could be bought and sold. Employees can change employers. Nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass. Now it's okay to buy and sell cattle, isn't it? But it's wrong to desire something 
that your neighbor has if you're desiring it in a wrong fashion or way. Nor anything that is your neighbor's. Absolutely anything. That's, that covers a lot of territory, you know. Now, what does this mean? This verse, or this word, covet, or covetousness, the word covet itself comes from uh, old, uh, Strong's 2530, it means delight in, in the Hebrew. Don't delight in your neighbor's house, his wife, his ox or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. King, the King James translates this in various places, this word. Duty, greatly beloved, covet, delectable thing, anything that would be delectable to you, great delight, desire, don't desire anything that's your neighbor's. Goodly, lust, pleasant thing, or precious thing is money. Might be precious to him. His gold, his silver, whatever. We're just not to desire that which our neighbor has. The same word is used in Micah 2. Micah 2. And verse 2. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. There are people who lie in bed at night trying to figure out ways to get what other people have. They do that in Las Vegas. Those people who own those casinos and control that city lie awake at night trying to figure out ways to get you to come there and give them your money. They covet your money. They covet your land, your house, your wife and family in that sense, and even your own life also, because there are people who have lost everything and then lost their lives to suicide or murdered in Las Vegas if perhaps they won a little more than those people wanted them to. They wind up in ravine somewhere. There are people who go there who say, I'm not there for money, I'm there because I want to learn to beat the system. I'll compete with those boys who have been doing this for nearly a hundred years now, and I'll beat their system, and I'll take their money away. And once in a while, like that uh, movie, I'm good with movies, uh, where you had the uh, obsessive-compulsive fellow, not just obsessive compulsive, but he he, he idiot savant. He you know, he, he did figures real well. Rain man, yeah. I knew some of you watched movies. <coughs> that was an interesting one. And uh, and I saw it several years ago. But he had the kid that he could compute numbers so fast. Well, they started winning. It wasn't long before they got invited out of town. At first they'll give you a sweep. And, in, and encourage you to reinvest all those winnings, give them back. 
And if you do that, you've been a good boy and everything's fine. Otherwise, you can wind up out in the desert. So they will not be beat. There is no way to beat them. And they play on covetousness. Is gambling a sin? Herbert Armstrong said it is. He didn't truly fully explain it, but I believe that it is, because it violates the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Now, they covet everything that you have, and they want you to come so they can lift it off you. And they do everything they can to cause you to covet while you're there, don't they? They have all the lights, they have all the atmosphere designed to make you want to smoke because you're breathing it in and out while you're in their facility. They have scantily clad women, which would cause you to want to stay and kind of look. They give you free drinks, which is designed to take away your self-control. They give you cheap rooms and cheap food to entice you to stay and play and give that which you have. The whole thing is carefully designed and orchestrated to get you to stay there and keep on playing till all your money is gone. I have lived around Las Vegas, both sides of it, and I've flown in and out of that airport many, many, many times. And when you're on a flight from Chicago or Anchorage or wherever I've flown there from, you see people who are on a high. They are so excited. They just can't wait to get there. They talk, they chatter, they laugh, they carry on, they order drinks. They just can't wait for that plane to land and that door to open and they flood into that airport and boy, they're one-armed bandits right there in front of them as they come out the gate. And then they're all over the city, everywhere you look. And all kinds of different types of gambling you can do. Like walking the street, across the street on Las Vegas Boulevard. <laughs> and I have flown out of there a lot of times. You can sleep on a plane out of Las Vegas, very subdued, very quiet. If they are talking, they're complaining. They lose it. They just lose it. The fun is over. The excitement's over. The wallet is empty. The credit card is full. And they'll be paying for it for a long time to come in many cases because they make it also very easy that once you're enticed, you can go to their ATMs and all those casinos and not only do you spend what you have on you, but you can draw everything that's at home as well and spend it. And if it's a credit card, you can draw money on that and you can go home not only broke, but in debt as well. And pay 9 to 21% interest on that for a while. Now, I knew, I've known some gamblers when we were living up in Montana. We had some friends that had a beautiful ranch around the corner. The land that I bought there was had previously been a part of that ranch. This ranch had been in the family for at least three generations. I mean, it was a gorgeous place. Green carpeting throughout the, the grass and pasture lands and pine trees on the upper part. Little creek running down through it. I mean, it's the kind of place you would dream about and salivate over if you liked country living. 
deer and elk running all over it, occasional antelope. Beautiful place. We became pretty good friends with them over several years there. But they discovered Jackpot, Nevada. Now, you had to drive through half of Montana, all the way across Idaho, down to the northern Nevada border to get to Jackpot. And they started going down there as soon as he got off work on Friday afternoon. Got to go to Jackpot. We'll have a wonderful time and we're going to win. And they would spend the whole weekend in Jackpot, Nevada, and come home talking about their winnings. Oh, I hit a good one. I won $200. They'd tell all over town how they'd won $200 or $300 or $100 or whatever jackpot they happened to hit. Of course, they didn't tell that they plugged it all right back into the machine and left broke. They didn't tell that part. They just told about the wins, the jackpots they hit. And they finally enticed two or three families that lived there in town to go down there, just for recreation. We just have a wonderful time, and we have good food, and it's cheap, you know, and it's just a wonderful weekend, and, and, and we can win. So, some others started going with them. Carpool, and sometimes two carpools a weekend going down there. This went on for a while, and we heard about all these winnings. I thought, man, maybe I ought to go down to Jackpot with him. I could win, too. Never did do it, because I went back and forth to Jackpot all the time as part of my church area. And I never stopped and gambled, but This went on for some time, a year or two. They're now living in a different town without a ranch because they lost that ranch on all those winnings. Someone who stayed at home and worked for a living and produced something who had also been in that valley for about three or four generations and worked hard had money in their pocket to buy that ranch when it came up for a pittance because they had borrowed money on it in order to go to Jackpot and win. And they were losing it all and lost it all. But the one who had been producing and working was able to buy it. And they were quite a lot of land over the area there. I won't say I never have gambled. Some years ago, there was a time I thought, well, I, was, I guess I was going through Las Vegas, headed back north up to Idaho or Montana. I don't remember what's been 20, 25 years ago, I suppose. But I decided I'd play a little blackjack. Maybe you could win at blackjack, I'd heard. So I sat down there and played blackjack for a while, and man, alive, I started winning. And I won $300. I don't remember how much it cost me to win the 300 but I was, I think I was 200 bucks ahead of the game. You know what I did? I actually made it out the door with that $200 profit. I got out of this casino, got in my truck or car or whatever I was driving, and headed north. I had won. And I felt so good and so smug, and I beat those people. I had won 200 bucks, and I'd actually made it out the door. And as I drove north through, I mean, from Vegas up to the... Jackpot line up there, or where I was headed, I don't remember for sure, several hundred miles. And I just floated as I floated along. And I got up, I don't know where it was, Winnemucca or Elko or somewhere. And I thought, boy, I did so good. Maybe I should go in here 
and have dinner, and uh, try a little more blackjack. Now, I made it out of the casino in Las Vegas with a profit, but I didn't make it out of the state with a profit. All I did was transfer the wealth from Las Vegas to Winnemucca or Elko, somewhere. And it may have been the same people that only lose more than I had won. But it just disappeared. I mean, those people spend nights sitting up, figuring out how to extract. They're better than dentists. They know how to extract. And they know how to get you to like it and spend lots of money to even fly there to do so. They've made it very, very appealing and enticing. And boy, when somebody does want a jackpot, all the bells and whistles and lights go off because you think, oh, somebody over there won. Well, I've been playing this one. I had somebody playing it. I saw somebody else playing it. And I've been on it for three hours, and it hasn't paid off. It's got to be next. It's got to be next. I saw a woman one time who told me, and she looked it, that she had been sitting there for 48 hours at that one machine. Put it in, pull the handle. Her hands were absolutely black from handling that much money. She looked like she could just fall over any moment. May have after I left. I don't know. Another woman. <laughs> it was probably in her late 60s or 70s. But so centered on that that she could not pull herself away. That is what covetousness will do. So they lay awake at night, devising evil and how that they can take something away from you. I use Las Vegas because that is the most blatant breaking of the Ten Commandments that I could think of. And partly because we live near there. Sodom and Gomorrah were not very far from Petra. And if this area in any way somewhere around here ever becomes significant, it's not very far from modern Sodom and Gomorrah either, Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Verse 2, and they covet fields and take them by violent means. They covet your fields. What did those people in Montana lose? They lost their fields, their pastures, their land. They lost their house. They lost their reputation and self-respect and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage, his inheritance. Those people lost a ranch that had been in the family for three generations and their children would have inherited it, but they gave it to those in Nevada. Gave it to them. They found a way to extract it from them. Is that sin? You bet it is. Um, there's another word in the Hebrew that is translated as covet. It is avah, number 183 in Strong's, and it's a primitive root to wish for. It doesn't have tones of lust necessarily, but don't even wish for anything that is your neighbor's. Now we know all those people in Las Vegas have a lot of money. So, it's wrong for me to wish for their money. 
much less to go there and try to take it against the stacked deck. This one is translated in King James as covet, greatly desire, be desirous, long for, or lust after. Deuteronomy 5.21 is a place it's used. Deuteronomy 5.21. It's a different word here in Deuteronomy than it is in Exodus 20. Same commandments, but a different word was used when this was written than was used when it was written in Exodus. Moses wrote Exodus, and he wrote Deuteronomy, but when he wrote the that word in the King James is used as covet in the New Testament, desire, lust after. Let's go to Romans 7. It's used there. I won't go to all the places, but just a sampling here. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I have not known sin, but by the law. For I have not known lust, except the law has said, you shall not covet. So, covetousness has to do with lust, or concupiscence, as my King James says, which is defined the same way. Lust. The law tells us we should not lust, and it is covered under covetousness. Romans 13, verse 9. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness or lie, you shall not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is deeply comprehended in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, isn't that what we saw in Isaiah 58? That we get rid of the selfish, carnal desires and try to give to others. That's what Paul is saying here. It's all summarized by loving your neighbor as yourself. Giving to your neighbor as opposed to getting, as Herbert Armstrong put it. There are different ways of wording things, but it's all the same principle. We're not to desire someone else's land or farm or ranch or town or anything else. We are to seek God and try to give and serve and help and be Christian, and whatever God might choose to give us is wonderful then. Now, have not some of you felt a frustration level over the last year because God had not given us anything? Yes. I've gone to God in prayer many times about it. I became frustrated over it. Was I coveting? I spec so because the fruit wasn't good. I was frustrating myself. Instead of giving, serving, helping, loving, doing all we can to serve one another, and the leaving it in God's hands, sometimes we frustrate ourselves because we break the Tenth Commandment. Not as blatant, perhaps, as going to Las Vegas, but it's the same principle. It's the same sin. Page two. <laughs> time is it? Another word for covet, for covetousness in the New Testament. I guess this is just covet so far. We haven't got the covetousness yet. Another word that is translated covet in the New Testament is uh, Strong's 2206. It means to have want of feeling for or against. That's used for covet. A feeling for something. A desire, a feeling towards something that you might want. It's translated many ways in the New Testament. 
some are affect, covet earnestly, or have desire for, to be moved with envy, to be jealous over, or to be zealous. Let's look at a couple of these, and then positive ones, where covet is used. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Maybe it's not the best translation, because covet often has a negative um, feel about it. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, it says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and, sh- and yet show I you a more excellent way. They're good for the right purpose and reason. A lot of people want the gifts of God for vanity's sake. I think that's probably why people would want to speak in tongues, for sure. And they speak in gibberish, which comes from Satan in many cases, but it's the pride and vanity of having the Spirit move through them instead of Sister Sarah that drives them on. God spoke through me. So it's okay to desire tongues, but it needs to be done for the right reason. The only reason I could imagine needing to speak in many tongues would be if there were a mixed audience who spoke a lot of different languages, and rather than having 14 interpreters, they could all hear in their own language, and I could speak in many languages. I expect that that is going to happen again at the end. In fact, I'm almost positive it will. Because if you have two people who go to speak to the whole world, they're going to have to speak in every language, aren't they? For people to understand. And people will have to hear what they say in their own language. So there's a practical purpose for it, as opposed to pride and vanity. The people might hear the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, then he gives a chapter on love right after that. He says, it says I'll show you a better way. Even though those gifts may be, have their price, their place, and their purpose, and it's good to want them for the right reasons, they better be for the reason of love. If it isn't for the reason of love, it's the wrong reason, and God won't give those gifts. He won't ask for the prayers and fasting as for Isaiah 58, unless we've gotten rid of the selfishness and are seeking to give of ourselves. And he won't give these spiritual gifts unless we're putting self aside and wanting them for the proper purpose that's to serve and love others. That's the way God works. He will only give to us as we give to others, just as he will only forgive if we forgive. See? There's cause and effect with God, always. And if we are being ineffective in our fasting and our prayers, we still got self in the way. It's that simple. Let's see one more, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 39 where he uses the same word for covet. 1 Corinthians 13, <coughs> verse 39. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues, let all things be done decently and in order. So it has to do with spiritual gifts again here. It's okay to desire them in a right way, but be sure it's the right way. Well, I'll go on a little further here. <coughs> Let's look at the word covetousness, same thing, uh, uh, implying an action. It's 
says, Thou shalt not covet, but you also shall not live in covetousness. Now let's go back to, uh, again, the Hebrew. This is number 1215, which is Betzah. And this word, as used in the Old Testament, means plunder, or by extension, to gain. So if we are not to live in covetousness, we are not to desire to gain, to have great gain. Christ made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that we are not to seek riches, but we are to seek righteousness. And it's okay to gain a certain amount. He says, well, if you have food and clothing, be content. Be content. Because desiring that which you don't have does what? It frustrates you. If you're content with the amount that you have, then you will be thankful for anything beyond that that you receive. But if you are not content with what you have, you will always be living in frustration. Because you desire something which might be legal, but if you cannot obtain it or have difficulty getting it, you live in frustration. Contentment is not a state of the bank account, it is a state of mind. People equate it to a bank account. If I only had $1,000, if I only had a million dollars, I would be content. I have never, ever in my life, and I've known quite a few millionaires, known anyone who had a million dollars who was content. I've not met one. I've known men who had multi-millions of dollars, and they were not content. They laid on their beds at night in frustration, wondering how to double it. I've done that myself. And they double it sometimes. And they're still not content. And I doubled it and tripled it and quadrupled it. And hundred times it a few times in my life. And I was not content. Because the eye was never filled with seeing or the ear with hearing or the wallet with accruing. I had money in the stock market about 35 years ago. Not quite as blatant as Las Vegas, but you can cover it in the stock market just about as easily. If you're coveting, you should not have money in the stock market. But when I had that money in the stock market all those years ago, it was actually going up day by day, week by week, and month by month. But I was frustrated because I wanted it to go up more day by day and week by week and month by month. I finally sold it and got out of there because I was tired of getting up at 5 o'clock when I heard the newspaper hit the driveway of running out to see if I was up on the 8th or down a quarter. Am I worth more or worth less today? And if I was up on 8th, I had a wonderful day. If I was down a quarter, I had a bad day. Or a bad hour, or however long it took to get over it. You know. Contentment has got to be in the head. Because accruing and acquiring and gaining will never make you content. Cannot do it. 
So, the fifth commandment is a positive commandment, isn't it? It's there to guard against. Let's go to, or let's see, this is translated in King James variously, gain, lucre, or money, or profit. Thou shalt not desire gain, money, or profit. Hmm, interesting. Exodus 18, verse 21. Let's see if the scripture backs that thought up. Exodus 17, or 18, excuse me, verse 21. Well, verse 20, talking to, well, get the context. Moses' father-in-law Jethro came to him, and Jethro was saying, You shall teach them ordinances and laws, and shall show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, you shall provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. This augments Titus and Timothy in the uh, qualifications for the ministry or the priesthood or anyone in a position of leadership of any kind. Men that actually hate covetousness. This is an interesting way of putting it, isn't it, that Jethro used? Not only people who barely control themselves and not wanting what their neighbors might have, but people who hate it. Them make leaders. That makes it hard to find leaders. <laughs> because it's hard to find people who hate gain and profit and desire for such. Very, very difficult to find. We get ready to ordain somebody. Maybe we should ask them the question. Do you hate profit? <laughs> Do you hate gain? I think he's implying here in the context, not just gain or profit per se, but using it in the wrong way. But I don't know that you can completely discount people who have a profit motive. If we have a profit motive, we're not giving and letting our right hand not know what our left hand is doing, are we? If our motive is profit. Because if you have a profit motive, you will distort, you will seek ways, you will find ways to misuse and abuse the sheep. Isn't that what Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 are all about? Misuse and abuse of the sheep. Proverbs 28, verse 16. Proverbs 28. And verse 16. The prince that wants understanding is also a great oppressor. That doesn't mean that he wants understanding, but that he lacks understanding. A prince that lacks understanding is also a great oppressor. But he that hates covetousness shall prolong his days. You will shorten your days with covetousness. You can worry yourself into deals. You can worry yourself into bad health. 
You can spend days and nights working at gaining wealth until you've ruined your health. That does not prolong your days. I have seen many people work day and night, workaholics, to gain wealth, and they lose all their wealth trying to regain their health. And feeling lousy while they do it. Seeking after wealth does not prolong your days. Isaiah 57. This is a good one. Isaiah 57. Verse 17. Well, let's, let's back up here a little bit. Uh, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Doesn't he tell us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to support the weak, help, you know, everyone as much as we can and so on? Let's see what God's attitude is. For I will not contend forever, ever, neither will I be always wrathful, for the spirit should fail before me in the souls which I have made. Do you sometimes feel like I just can't take any more? I've had all I can take. I've done all I can do. I can't overcome anymore. I'm so sick and tired of having to beat myself about the head and ears to control my mind, to control my hands. I'm just tired of it all. I think we've all experienced that emotion from time to time. God has told us he will not put more on us than we can bear, hasn't he? And he says right here, but I will not always be wrathful, for the Spirit should fail before me. The people just couldn't handle it anymore. Before they give up, I will turn it around. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I angry, and smote him. He's telling us here that what has happened to the church had in great part to do with breaking the Tenth Commandment. He smote us and was angry because of covetousness. Doing the opposite of what Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount. Not seeking him with all our heart, but seeking materiality and gain and keeping up with the Joneses or the Smiths with all our heart. Because our minds were on houses and cars and clothes and entertainment and this and that and the other thing. An attitude of mind, of seeking things of this world as opposed to seeking God. That's what made him so angry. Saying, I'm rich and increased with goods. I have everything I need. Both spiritually and physically, that attitude came through. God says, I hid me. I hid from you and was wrathful, and he went on boldly in the way of his heart. That's what we did, brethren. We were sitting in the church, playing church, having our Sabbath smile, but we weren't living it. We weren't sharing and giving and helping and serving. We were seeking other things. We were seeking this world. So God hid from us. He's playing hide-and-seek. 
And he's saying, come find me. I hid. I'm in the closet. I'm somewhere else. Come find me. And he went on fervently in the way of his heart. Didn't go seek God. Just went on. Like the fool who's out chasing women there in, in uh, Proverbs 1 to 7. And he just goes on. And he's enticed. And he doesn't get the point until a dart strikes through his liver, it says. Verse 18. I have seen his ways and will heal him. God is going to heal us. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, says the Eternal, and I will heal him. He is going to preserve a remnant out of this scattering. We've seen that in many scriptures. Of those who seek him and find him, and he won't hide anymore. He will come and he will heal us if we do our part. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Because of covetousness, which is a subject here, that's a sin that's mentioned, we can't rest. We have to be going forth, earning more, finding a way to get what it is, whatever it is that we wish and desire to have. Instead of being content with what we have, being thankful for what we have, because covetousness destroys Thankfulness. It destroys it. If you're always wanting more and your prayers are me, 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 help me, give me, hear me, whatever, me, we become frustrated and no longer thankful. And God says he won't hear covetousness or covetous prayers, selfish prayers. So he says, fast and break the bands of wickedness. And give, 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 as opposed to get, get, get. Serve and give as opposed to covet and desire to have. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. Just can't find peace. Well, I've got a few minutes. Let me finish this section. Let's go to Jeremiah 6. We're getting a diagnosis here of our problem. It's what God is giving us. Jeremiah 6 and verse 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed also the herd of the daughter of my people slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. There are many ministers today who are still in a covetous mode trying to extract money from the people to do whatever work they covet to do, desire to do, whether it fits the scripture and what God is doing or not, God says, when you find yourself in this position that you put yourself in because of covetousness, come find me. Let's hide, play hide and seek. The mode we should be in today is come find God. But the mode that many are in is let's go out 
and keep getting money and preaching the gospel, doing what they think ought to be done, instead of reading the scriptures that we just read in Isaiah 57, which tells us what to do when we find ourselves in this position. So they'll say, come sit in my congregation, and we will have peace, peace, when there really is no peace. Because those people are still frustrated and having difficulty, even as they sit there thinking that they have their ticket punched to go to a place of safety in the kingdom of God. Because we have not solved Laodiceanism and covetousness. And therefore, we cannot be content. And if you are not content, and I am not content, it is because we're breaking, or in part at least, we're breaking this command. And if you break one, you break them all. See, we're not honoring our Father in Heaven, the first command, because we're not being thankful, being covetous of what we might want. See, when we approach this out of this subject of land, Is it wrong to have land? Is it wrong to have your own vine and fig tree? No, that's the way people will live in the millennia. That is the best way to live. If it weren't the best way to live, then all these scriptures in Isaiah would not be talking about it. It's the best way to live. He says in Isaiah, I looked it up, 14.21, I think it was, that they will not build cities all over the world. God hates the cities of this world. He hates Chicago. He hates Los Angeles. He hates London. He hates New York. He hates Miami. He hates Saigon. He hates all these cities. Because people don't have their own vine and fig tree. And they're there to bite and devour and to covet and to get gain. And to dog eat dog and climb all over each other to do so. He hates the cities, and they will not be built all over the world in the millennium. So the best way to live is everyone have his own property, his own vine and fig tree. If we can put ourselves in a position, and God will allow that, that's the best way to live today. If it's the best way to live then, it's the best way to live now. And if we go about it with the right attitude and not say, well, I'm going there so that I can get mine, but I'm going there so that I can live the right way and give to my children and give to those around me and I can share, then God will bless it. It's up to us. It's up to us. Jeremiah 8, verse 10, says the same thing. Why does God repeat this? Therefore will I give their wives to others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least even to the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. People and priests. Everyone, he says. I'm going to give what you have to others. That's going to happen to physical Israel. God is going to give it all to somebody else. And he's doing the same thing spiritually in the church just before he does it to the world. For they have healed the curse of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Are you confused at all about whether we have peace in our land or not? Aren't they saying we'll get homeland security and we'll have peace? And you and I know better, don't we? 
Aren't they saying the same thing in the churches? And we know better, don't we? I'll cry aloud and spare not and tell you the covetousness is at the root of a lot of our frustrations and difficulties as people of God today. Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. I'll tell you we don't have the kind of peace we ought to have. And I'll tell you why we don't have it. Same person that said I could be great if I would do what he said also said that I'm a hireling and I won't speak out because I'm afraid I'll lose my paycheck. <laughs> Give me a break. I had a better paycheck before I came in back into the ministry, I'll guarantee you. And my wife signs my paycheck anyway. And I don't even know how much it is. And I didn't take it for six months this year. Because I want that money to be there for whatever God has need of. So take your accusations and do something else with them. Jeremiah 22, verse 17. But your eyes and your heart are not but for your covetousness and for your shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Now, none of us want to murder or shed blood physically, but we squeeze blood, don't we, sometimes? Don't we try to squeeze? I mean, isn't it normal and carnal and natural to try to squeeze what somebody else has into our own wallet? Sure it is. It's the way of the world. 51, verse 13, Jeremiah. 51, verse 13. Set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Eternal has both devised and done that which he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you that dwell upon many waters, abundant in treasures, your end is come, and the measure of your covetousness. The way of this world is a Babylonian system devised by Satan. It is coming to an end. It is the way of materiality and gain and covetousness. That's what makes the world, as we know it, go round. Is money and gain and Wall Street. We are the epitome of the Babylonian system in America today. And God says it is going to come in a great financial crash in Zephaniah 1, and we'll all be taken away. And we read one about where our land will be taken away as well already today because of covetousness, of desiring to get. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. We'll wind this up here. Verse 31. And they come to you as the people comes, and they sit before you as my people. They sit before you as my people, telling Ezekiel. And they hear your words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. 
And lo, you are unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do them not. Isn't it the hearers that God will reward? Well, I think I read in the New Testament somewhere it was the doers. And when this comes to pass, when people hear the ministry say pleasant things, and even hard things sometimes, but they won't respond. They won't do it. They won't take it personal. You can talk about the Tenth Commandment, Fourth Commandment, Third Commandment, whatever commandment you want to talk about, and they'll hear it, and they'll say, that was a wonderful, fine sermon, brother, but they won't do it. They won't take it to heart. And he says, when this comes to pass, and all it shall come, then they shall know that a prophet has been among them. Now, wasn't Herbert Armstrong among us? Didn't he say over and over and over ad nauseum that we need to learn to quit getting and give? That's one thing he said that I just simply have to agree he was right. Did I do it? A prophet was among us. Everything the man did and said was not right. But he gave us the truth. And if he didn't do anything else, he gave us the principle of Isaiah 58, fasting for the wrong selfish reasons as opposed to breaking selfishness and giving to others. He had a simple way of putting it so that nobody could miss the meaning, but we didn't do it. And God has blown us apart because we didn't get it. Now, we still have a chance to come through this in the right way because Ezekiel 33 tells us that if he who has sinned does right, it will be counted as righteousness no matter what he's done. We have time now to turn it around and do something about it. And you and I may have a tremendous opportunity if this piece of land that we're looking at comes through and is almost given to us as it appears that it may be. If this happens, it is because we have put covetousness aside, we have fasted with the right attitude, and we want to go there to build a giving, loving, sharing society. If we go there with selfishness and the covetousness of this world, we will be an absolute failure. The fact that God gave us some land will mean nothing if we don't live by his ways. Because we will go there, and instead of being so thankful and singing praises to him, we will still be covetous in our approach to life. And anything we do will fail, and God will hide from us. But if we fast to draw close to him and pray that his will be done, then whatever we endeavor to do, he will bless, and he will heal us. It all comes down to whether we are hearers or doers. That's a good place to close for today. Somebody may say this is a negative sermon. I don't think so at all. Thou shalt not covet is a very positive statement. 
Because if you don't covet, you become thankful. And when you become thankful, you're not frustrated anymore. Now, that's positive. 